0: Good morning. My name is David. I'm an anchor here and serving on the First Impressions team. Today we're going to be reading out of Second Thessalonians, chapter three. <clears throat> as for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we, evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen you to. Pr- and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, you were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that you would we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark with all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
1: All right. Well, praise be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. That's a good one, isn't it? Shame the people that are lazy in the church. Amen. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you what, there's so much in there. I mean, if you're somebody that glazes over during uh, the readings and hey, I'm not judging, um, I mean, to paraphrase, I mean, the apostle Paul comes in and is like, hey, good job. You guys are awesome. We're going to wind this thing down. Oh, by the way, um, if people are around and they're not working, they're not going to eat. I mean, it's, he just kind of goes, he says, and oh, by the way, uh, don't associate with them. Make them feel a little bit of shame and embarrassment for their laziness. I mean, that's a, there's a lot in there that you can kind of take in. And then he's like, hey, just so you know, I wrote this. Mic drop. I mean, he just kind of goes in. It's almost like, I mean, I started reading it in the, the tempo and the meter of the, it's like a, a, an old granddad from the 50s is like, man, people don't work anymore. You know, people got to work, you know, and he's, he's rolled into 2023 and he's watched a few TikToks. And he's like, people are quitting their job because it's work, right? I mean, he's just frustrated. And uh, I, I, when, I, when I read it, because I'm, I'm now in my 50s, I don't know why I enjoy saying that. I'm like, i in my 50s. Um, but it's a different generation for sure. Like you look at, and I, I wanted to, I tried to refrain from looking, looking at the way that the, the tempo of work is, because I, I want to talk a little bit about like biblical work, what it means to uh, like the the command and the institution of work that started in Genesis. Like God's, you know, that's that's something that's in it, that we that we should be cultivating the world that we're in, that we should subdue the land, that we should be. Um, making it a better place to live, and part of that is working, and sometimes it's in the minute in the minutia, in the mundane. Um, but I, I, uh, I was looking at, it, I was like, okay, how do I not make this about, um, you know, a generational thing? Because I, you know, I, I, I grew up working. I come from a family of workers. Not that I'm saying I'm the the best at it, but you know, at a young, pretty young age, 14 years old, I got my first job. Worked at a car wash. I know. You want to start singing it, don't you? Working at the car wash. Um, I worked at the car wash, and I loved it. I loved it. Now, it was work, um, but I, I loved it. I got to drive stick shifts at age 14. You know, you got to pull the... I think it, it was the first soft, soft cloth car wash in Tallahassee. And I remember, you know, a Porsche would pull up or something, and you'd fight all your, you know, the other 14 and 15-year-olds to put it in... Get the, you, all you could get out of it was first you don't even know what I'm talking about because you're young people. Um, my son has a stick, and he doesn't even have to, have to lock his car because he's like, nobody's going to steal this. Um, but it's it's a, it's a different generation. You, you grow up, like I grew up, you know, you, you work, and um, it's, it is it is different. You know And not just work, because work is not just going to an office, right? It's like yard work. I grew up, like you didn't leave the house on Saturday until you did your chores. Now, that might be your household, and you might have kids that do that, and you guys might be the... A plus, you know, Bible students in here, um, but chores. I'm talking about chores. Like you, you, you were out there for out. My dad would be like, all right, I think you should go rake the forest. You know, you'd be out there in the back going, Dad, this isn't even the yard. You know, you're working the the leaves and making huge piles, and he's just doing it because he, you know, he went to the Citadel and he's like, works good for you. It's real good for you. Um, but but we are we're in a different. I mean, we're in we are in a different place, and I'm not. You know, it's again. I don't want to lodge any. Um, you know, fire any shots at any particular generation. But the way that we look at work, there's this upheaval right now, and there's this push against it. And part of it was coming out of COVID. People, people kind of, they went home and just didn't work uh, for a while, and or worked from home, and we got used to a certain. And then all of a sudden, some of these corporations are like, okay, it's time to get back to work. And we're like, uh, work, you know, we got to go back and, and do it. It's like nine to five, ah, like it's the worst thing ever, like you gotta, and I can't ever leave, like ever, like to do a fun little thing, uh, no, you gotta work, it's fun, you know, that's what, we, what you're doing, but I was reading some, I mean, there really is a huge kind of movement right now um, to just like revisit what work is, and a lot of it's kind of, there's extremes to it, like there's some that's just like, hey, you know, what does it look like to live and not work, I don't even know how to know how to calculate it figured out but here's some quotes from some different magazines and some magazine titles just about um, what's kind of happening right now in our culture one is from digital magazine says new research has found that nearly 1 in 10 young people never intend to start working like never so much so that Kim Kardashian was right when she said nobody wants to work these days I mean you got Kim Kardashian going what's going on people (laughs) won't work you know people aren't working I mean, I can't, you can't, even, you can't even make this stuff up. In Medium, the title of this article was A Bigger Paycheck? Question mark. I'd Rather Watch the Sunset. No kidding. Is this the end of ambition? And in uh, an article in Vox, I read this. It, was, it says, over the past two years, young millennials and members of Gen Z, now I know a lot of hardworking millennials and Gen Zers, so no offense, I'm just reading it. Um, they have created an abundance of memes and pithy commentary about their generational disillusionment toward work the jokes which correspond with the rise of anti-work ideology online they range from shallow and shameless you know being a rich housewife uh, being the goal to candid and pessimistic one quote says i don't want to be a girl boss i don't want to hustle declaimed another tiktok user mm-hmm. yeah i simply want to live my life slowly and lay down in a bed of moss with my lover, and enjoy the rest of my existence, reading books, creating art, and loving myself and the people in my life. <laughs> you can't make it up. You just can't. It's out there. And there's, I'm not kidding, there's theres tons. There was one meme that I thought was like a joke, but it was somebody being serious about like being very frustrated that they had to work from nine to five, and like it was oppressive, and you know, they went and they got out of college, and they you know uh, immediately i went into the slavery of an actual 9 to 5 job where they actually told you you couldn't leave to go do a fun little thing and they and people were posting like oh i can't believe that that's so you know you know 2020 you know 1 and now we're 23 and it's different but reddit has one of the largest anti work communities that's out there it's one of the largest like groups and communities of people that are just anti not Like changing work, I get that work conditions can be bad and that people can be unreasonable bosses and all that. And it's a place to complain. This is literally like, hey, how can we figure out how to live life and not work at all? Um, And then they had a whole group of people, over a million of them, that just resigned on the same day. Now, nobody really cared because they were the people that nobody really cared about working anyway. Right. But it was kind of a big deal. Like the, the great resignation is what people are calling it. I'm like, I didn't even feel that. In the economy because they weren't really making that much money um, but it's it's an interesting time that we live in compare that to my generation or a generation before us my mother-in-law was just in town uh, she was actually at the 9 a.m. she was mad at me for showing this but uh, my sister-in-law wanted she's like gosh I want to get these ferns that you know I want to move these to a different spot in the in the bed but tomorrow you know it's gonna it's, it's raining all day well this is what happens when a 75 year old says it's raining all day She puts on her stuff. She's out there just digging up the ferns, just working it out there. We work, you know. Yeah. Her favorite Spanish word is trabaja, And she says it like that, like (laughs) you got to work. She's Italian and uh, she has worked hard her whole life. But we've got this this kind of image and these thoughts about about work and how we attach so many different things to it. Uh, And you've got so many things in this passage when it comes to what it looks like to be lazy and idle. And obviously, there's, it's a serious deal. I mean, the Apostle Paul is t- literally talking about not associating with somebody that is disruptive and idle and is not carrying their weight so much so, hey, they don't work, they don't eat. If they continue this pattern of being idle and being a busybody, we're not going to associate with them. So there's some seriousness to it. So I want to kind of get around, you know, what it is, you know, how, what is our approach to work as Followers of Jesus, and really, what are the things that biblically we should be attaching to this idea of a community and carrying our weight and what work is? So, if you've got if you've got your Bible, take a just take a look at this passage. I just want to start up in verse six. It says, "In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you." Now, the Apostle Paul uses this like he uses the word command several times in this passage. There's only one other place in Scripture where he uses it in this nature and in this fashion. Because he's, he's trying to express a certain type of authority about a situation that is dangerous. And it doesn't even feel that way because you're like, idleness and laziness is dangerous? Uh, the Apostle Paul sees it that way. The other place in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 5, where he's kicking somebody out of the church. Disruption because of sexual sin. And he's commanding them. This is unrepentant person involved in sexual sin. And he uses the same type of language and prescribes the same thing. Don't associate with them. We need to separate them from the rest of the body for, um, because it's going to affect the entire community. And this person is unrepentant. And for their good and the good of the body of believers, separate them. I mean, it's a serious kind of thing. So he says, We command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching uh, you received from us. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. I mean, the Apostle Paul is a bold dude. He's like, hey, watch how we do it. Watch how we go. He says, this is, this is what it looks like to work hard. He says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. I mean, I wish that was read to my roommates when I was in college. Um, he says, on the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Right? No burden. He says we did this not because we don't have the right to get help from you, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. I mean it's a good he's he's got this this idea that he wants them to understand what it looks like to to not be lazy. But also, there's some other things deeper in this in this passage. So I want to answer this question, and I think in answering it, we're gonna we'll unpack a little bit of church discipline, because uh, you know when you look at uh, where people structure their bylaws in churches and come up with church discipline, many of these passages and these verses are like, hey, these are the things that we have to do. We have to structure things to protect the body of believers, and what it looks like to create corrective. We are a family. We say. Here, hey, church isn't a place you attend. It's somewhere you belong. It's family. Well, people love that until we get to church discipline, right? Until it really operates and starts to look like a family. Until you start to talk about the idea of what it looks like to have authority in the church and people to have some sort of accountability. But if something as simple as work can uproot and give us some some idea as to what that looks like in church, it'll be helpful for us this morning. So there's some beliefs that we see here that the Apostle Paul is driving at in his instruction, but also in his frustration. I think when you can catch a tone in a passage like this to understand, okay, what, what is it that is making him so frustrated? It forces us to dig a little bit deeper into our commentaries and look and see what this is all about. So, um, city groups this week, this will be a good one. But one is, how should we approach um, work? The first one is, work is a belief and not a building. And the reason we, we wanted to make that statement so, somewhat memorable is because we it we to, like, this isn't just about a place. Like, this isn't, okay, I gotta go to work. So, what does it look like to go to this place, my cubicle? I want you to get Michael Scott out of your minds and the cubicle and what it looks like to work, because work can happen anywhere. Work can happen in the home, work can happen in the church. The way our attitude is more of a belief and an attitude and a heart than it is a, a building or a schedule or a time. Because I think sometimes we, we approach it that way. The Bible's clear that work is a, it's a good gift from God. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God institutes work and says, this is the earth that you are a part of, you were created from, you are going to subdue it, you are going to control it, you are going to be in charge of it, you are going to work it, this is going to produce good things, and it was good. There was an enjoyable sense to what work is. Solomon says work is a good gift. Solomon would even say in Ecclesiastes that, hey, don't retire. He's like, he could, he's the richest, wisest man on the planet. He's like, don't retire. And it doesn't mean that you don't ever leave one job at the end of your life and change what you do, but retirement should mean adjustment. It should mean, okay, now this is where my work was and where my focus was, but really just ceasing to do anything productive is probably not good. My grandfather, I think I said this about a month ago. He said, all of my friends that have retired are now dead like he said that and t- i mean and he lived to be in his 90s he worked up until he was 80 89 he got dementia and then he couldn't work anymore but he would work till about two and then go play golf three four days a week with all he said with all the young guys in their 70s um don't i mean don't that's that's and that's wisdom that's that's straight out of the ancient text in ecclesiastes that hey don't retire. So work. There's this gratifying and life-giving nature to work. Work can be life-giving and purpose. Like have a have a purpose to it. Wherever you are. I mean, I I do the dishes or clean the house, and I'm like, you know, Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights. I'm like, I'm the best there is. You know, no one could touch my stuff. You know, I, I look at the survey of the land when I do the landscaping, and I'm proud of it. Like, there's something inside of you when you create something and you do something. That God put in there, accomplishment, right? But there's also what we see in Genesis chapter three, something that's different than work. It's called toil, which is the curse, right? The curse came. And what did, what did God say? He says, Hey, look, gave you work, but now because of sin, because of brokenness, because now sin is gonna enter you and sin is entering all of mankind. You're gonna have bad work, you're gonna have bad bosses, you're gonna have toil, you're gonna have to do things that feel meaningless and fruitless. That will be woven into what you do as work. And it's good for us to know that because there's days where the best things that you do are just going to be work. I was asking Megan Russell in the first gathering. She was sitting right there. We were just having a conversation because that's what we do here at Ocean City Church. Um, Like She does what she loves. She leads a CrossFit gym, one of the first ones ever in Jacksonville. She knows all the CrossFit, like the people that started it. She's involved in, in 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 a powerful way. And it's her passion, her and Chris's passion. But I said, "But is it hard? Are there days where it's, it's miserable?" And she's just like, "Yes. Why? Because there's people. There's people in it, and it's hard. It's, it's, it's work. There's things no matter what you do. Like people are like, "Well, you, you work for a church, you get to do work that reverberates into eternity. Yeah, it's hard. You people at work, I'm telling you, it's work. That's no laugh. I should have got a laugh there. <laughs> people are <our> work. <laughs> but it's it is. It's it's there's something about it. There's something woven into it because of sin, because of the brokenness of sin, a lot of work. It's gonna it is gonna be that way. And for us to make excuses like it's got to be the, you know, I've gotta I've gotta live my dreams. Sometimes it's not a dream, right? Sometimes it is not gonna be that thing in your mind where it's going to. Pay you back. In Psychology Today, I read this article. It was awesome because it, it reflected what, what we've known from the Bible all along, that we can't put our identity and our hope in anything other than Jesus. Like if you, hit, if you hit your wagon and your identity to anything other than Jesus, it is fragile. It will fall apart before your eyes. Maybe not right away. You might make yourself feel good in a moment. You might get a little thimble full of, you know, self-worth out of, your, uh, out of your work and out of the, the purposefulness that you feel on planet Earth. But if, if you make that your identity, it will crush you. And uh, this article in Psychology Today was talking about the problem of work and what we've done. Like it was saying, basically, we're trying to adjust people's attitude and give people flexibility in their job and put people here, put people there. Maybe they should work from home. Maybe we should be more flexible with the nine to five, which I think all that's, that's great. But the article basically said, no, we, we have to change the way that we think about work. And the problem they uproot is this. It says, at some point, we began to equate our entire sense of meaning and purpose with work itself. Expecting work would pay us back in some way. Work is benign. It's not something that's, that's in your corner or out of your corner. Our identity got wrapped up in not what we are, but what we do. Performance. Work doesn't care how hard you work, how stressed you are, how burnt out you are, how poor your health is due to, the, due to your work. Work does not pay you back and never will. That is not the Bible. That is psychology today. Amen. It's like what God's been saying all along about your identity, about your self-worth, is we're figuring, I said this is, article was written in 2020, 2022. Like, hey, we got to figure this out. And we've been uprooting this in scripture and idolatry for years and how we we put our hope in a false savior called work. So that is how we have to understand, look, the way that we approach work, it is a belief. It's not a building. It is something that God has given us as a gift, but it's not our identity now. Work does is should we should there be should we look at work and go, well, I just gotta do it the way that it is. No, I think as as employers, employers should look at the schedule that people have and look at the nine to five and say, hey, let's figure out creative ways to be flexible. Let's figure out ways we can we can benefit our employees. Let's have create let's have, you know, let's buy them lunch, let's do socials, let's have the Dundee Awards, let's do fun stuff at work, right? Make it a, a good place to work. But as employees, to not go in demanding it or expecting it. Like, this is what I deserve. But rather be grateful and view your employer in a different way. Instead of looking at your employer thinking of yourself as the lucky one, think, hey, it's great. I got a job. Right? It's Looking at it differently um, as we approach, as we approach work. But that's a belief. That's something that's wired into the person that God has made us. Secondly, work is a pattern and not a place. We see this in this passage. It's pretty amazing. The Apostle Paul kind of uproots this idea that there's a bad pattern and we need to get back to a better pattern. In verse six, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. Again, there's that term command brothers and sisters to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. So he's he's uprooting this idle and disruptive term, which we're going to talk about. But he's also saying, hey, the teaching, not, they don't care about God's word either. Like there's 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 a there's a problem, there's a an active, not a passive, like petty thing that somebody's forgetting to do. There's a there's a knowledge, conscious, conscious like obstinance here. So if you take that those words idle and disruptive, and some of your translations already pick up on this, but you dig down into the Greek, it says it says it this way: walks disorderly and in enduring word bible uh, the uh, bible commentary it says the present tense of the verb walks denotes that it is a deliberate course of action so this person's actions that the apostle paul is frustrated with their disorderly conduct is not an occasional lapse but a persistent practice meaning somebody's doing it over and over again and they don't really they don't really care even though you they've been told don't do it there's something about their actions. And you'll, you'll see later in that passage, he uses the term busybody. They're not just not working, but they're doing something. They're infecting the rest of the staff. You know what I'm saying? They're infecting the rest of the community with being a busybody in the way that they operate. Meaning they're busy doing something, but it ain't the right thing. It's something that's tearing down the community. It's pulling apart the community. How they're complaining, How they're talking about people, whatever it is that they're doing, it is very, very disruptive, and it's a practice that's continuing. I remember years ago I worked for um, uh, a restaurant uh, while I was in college called the Mill Bakery Eatery and Brewery, first brewery in the state of Florida. Um, Very proud moment for me, and it, it was it was one of the best jobs I ever had. It was one of the like the first like. It was like pre-organic times, you know, when everybody's, everybody's into the organic, fresh, you know, kale, you know, awfulness that goes on now. Um, and this was, this was like the precursor to that. So we had a lot of college students that worked there. And then we had a lot of, like, you know, people that ate grass that worked there, like people that were super into that thing, you know, and were super into the health. I should do more of that. I'll probably live longer. Um, but that was kind of who, who was there. It was a great place to work, super fun. But to manage, all of a sudden, if somebody's like you're taking on back then it was all the management responsibilities. It wasn't like shift manager. It was like you were the the man while you were there, and so you you hired and fired people, like you interviewed people, did all the stuff, and it's a lot when you're 21 years old uh, to take on that responsibility. We had this one this cute little girl named was Barry, and uh, she she was she was totally like into in it to win it with the i mean just super sweet wanted to save the world with like macrame and was awesome like just one of those cute granola people and she she was like five minutes to 35 minutes late to work every every shift she came in for and i had a i had a manager his name was brian maston i'll never forget him he was super consistent he was my favorite manager um because he was fun to work with, always high energy, made work fun, but always very consistent. And you knew what was expected of you. Now, there was another manager. His name was Carl. Carl was also fun, but he was inconsistent. He was the guy that would, like, at 2 in the morning, he would say, Hey, y'all, meet me back up at the restaurant. We're going to do shots off the wall. And that was the guy you don't really want to go. That's probably the, not the best management style. And so I, uh, he, he said, Look, somebody's late three times, they're done. He goes, They know the rule. So there's no, don't make any cushion, because if you do, then everybody else is going to know that, hey, man, Derek's not going to really fire anybody after three times. Well, Barry had been, this was, she had already been late, pretty late a couple of times, and came in just five minutes late. And I'm looking at it thinking, i got to let this one go. Um, but I had kind of Brian Mastin's mind in my mind, and I'm like, i got to fire Barry, this cute little girl with a nose ring that that loves trees and is awesome, and so I brought her in the office, and she was. I, I said, "Barry, I'm so sorry. You know, you, you're late again. You know the rule three times. I'm gonna have to let you go." Um, and she was like in shock. Now, I mean, t- in today's world, I mean, you know, she'd be hiring an attorney, and I'd be getting fired. Um, but back then, I mean, even back then, she was like, "What?" She couldn't couldn't believe it. But it, it was it was this it was a pattern. Now, when I look at that situation, that was less and like less intentional that's not what the apostle Paul's dealing with the apostle paul's dealing with a heart and an attitude look in verse 11 he's upset not about something petty he's even something a little more elevated where you're you're lacking in responsibility because there was employees that were glad that i fired barry and they, they thanked me, and I didn't even know they were upset. But they're like, look, we've been holding, like, Barry's been late and doesn't do good work. And there's a, it's not just the late thing. When she's here, she's not really here. And there was a lot of other stuff that was going on. And they are like, thank the Lord she's not here. And so there's other people that were, like, carrying, like, having to work twice as hard when she was either on shift or late. But Paul's not upset about something petty. There's an underlying pattern that was frustrating him. Verse 11, it says, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. I love this is in the Bible. It's awesome. I mean, Paul's like, don't be this person. In fact, don't associate with this person. Don't just not be this person, but don't hang out with that person. Like, I don't want you to be, be around them. They're, they're, they're going to That's going to cause you some, some problems. Now, the instituting church discipline is a big deal here. Like, I think that makes people nervous, but it shouldn't be. Like we're, we're a family. And the, the, way, the way that the Apostle Paul looks at it in, in the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in this particular situation where they're, everybody calls this the passage in Scripture where they're kicking people out of the church. But really what's going on is just wisdom. Because when somebody is unrepentant, when somebody has an issue, when somebody has a problem, this is an, a disruptive problem, a pattern. And people that, like, when you think about addiction, it's a pattern. And what, what, do, you do, what do you do with an, with an addict? Eventually, you got to cut them off from the source, right? I mean, you don't give an addict, I mean, where's Matt Odom? You don't give an addict a sweaty pile of cash, do you? I mean, what's going <laughs> to, he's like, no, that's not what you do. What do you do? You lovingly, you bring them to that place and you say, look, we're going to have to disassociate. I've had to do that in my life with family members. People that I love, to tell them to their face, I love you, but if you go this direction and you keep going this direction, I'm going to, to protect my family and to protect my heart, protect all these people that love you behind me, we're going to have to cut you off. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to eliminate this. That's church discipline. It's out of love. There's no, this isn't a mouth. He even says, what does he, what does he say in the end of that passage? You're paying attention. Do not make this person your enemy. Don't make them your enemy, but you might have to cut them off. I mean, this, is, this, is, this ain't 2023, is it? It doesn't feel like it. Like, this sounds like the 50s, but you know what? If we reinstitute this, right, we do this, we might be charging the darkness of hell and saving people from destruction because people are going the way of death, and we want people to follow Jesus into the way of life. And God uses us, uses the church. This is, this is plan A for our own. And there'll be times when I need it. There'll be times when you need it. There'll be times, I mean, there's people in this room. I can tell you that this, this process has happened to them in some way and fashion with their family or with the church. And it was the place at which they remember rescue. We've had testimonies on videos of that very thing happening. Where that was the moment They were loving people with the Spirit of God leading them that put their foot down and said, we love you, but no more. I'm going to fight to keep you from going over that cliff. And one of the ways that we do that is we put it in front of them. And the Apostle Paul is also doing it because he knows that this infects the rest of the church. Like laziness begets laziness begets laziness, right? I mean, I've said this many times, you know. If you go hang out with four broke friends, you're going to be the fifth. that's just the way, that's what you tell your kids, right? Right? You know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future, who you hang out with. And the Apostle Paul knows it for his community. So one, he loves them. Two, he's the shepherd of that community as well. And he's like, hey, we're not going to, this is not, we are carrying the gospel of Jesus, the most important thing, more important than the cure to cancer or anything else. This is eternal life. We're carrying the message of reconciliation in our chest to the rest of the world, we're not going to have the disruptive, idle, lazy people screwing it all up. We're not. We love them. We want them to get back on board. But you know what? We're not going to sacrifice the many for the one, despite how poorly you might use theology from Luke, saying, oh, just leave the 99, go after the one idiot. No, you've misunderstood the theology of that passage. That's why I love that this is in here, because the Apostle Paul doing the opposite. That means, hey, this 99 is okay. There's somebody that, that deserves and needs rescue or doesn't deserve it, but Jesus is going to go rescue. That's not the way that the church operates. You don't sacrifice the whole church because there's one person that doesn't care and is unrepentant. That person needs church discipline. It's a whole different thing. Sometimes, what, what did Jesus say? He says, hey, if they don't listen, they're not listening, what are going to do? Dust the feet off and move on. Dust the feet off and move on. You'll know when that time happens. And sometimes, I remember a, a wise missionary told me one time, work where God is working. And he was telling me, because I was in youth ministry at the time, and I would chase the kids that were the worst and the furthest out, which is a great thing. I want to chase the marginalized. I've been reading lots of passages about the ones that are the furthest out and how those are the ones that don't get any attention. It's always these kids. But I'd gone a little too far. I'd gone to the, like, the kids that were, didn't care. They just didn't want to be there didn't want to be around spending all my time and here's a bunch of kids with broken homes that were looking to me and looking to the ministry like hey please lead me to life but I was going oh they're going to be fine and running after the one that was just like not listening not doing anything at some point you got to go you know what I'm out I'm going to work where God's working and I'm going to see that I'm going to let the Holy Spirit kind of lead me in that way now when we think about work as a pattern, not a place, I think there's a lot of people in here that are pattern people. Some type A people in here like, man, <laughs> you preaching to the choir. You've got to work, right? I mean, i definitely got some people in here who've been nodding their heads since the very beginning. Started bashing millennials. You're like, darn right, those millennials. Gen Zers, you know, what are we doing? Collab. I don't even know why Mary Beth said that. <laughs> but here's the deal. Like... The enemy works in all kinds of ways and can disrupt and 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 destroy a community. And in one way we can be obstinate is maybe we work maybe we're at work on time maybe we're you know we're the we're the cleanest person in the house. And again, work is not a place. It's not doesn't have to look like cubicles and you know my attorney's office or doctor's office. It's it's home. It's church. It's we. It's it's an attitude. It's a pattern. But you might be that person that does it right all the time. Always crushes it, like I'm always on time. In fact, I do it better than everybody else. And that's your heart and attitude. You look at your boss, you look at the people around you, and, and you've got that spirit about you. And everybody kind of feels. I'll tell you what, passive bucking of authority is felt by everyone. Everyone knows, and it infects things. Complaining, and that's that's somebody that maybe, maybe they don't complain, but passively they're complaining with their eyes, with the way they roll into a meeting, coming, you know, you know you. Don't care about hey, I could run this whole deal better than the guy that's going to run this meeting anyway. So you roll in right on time, and you roll in. I'm just talking to my buddy over here and hey, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, we did the thing. We went over to the deal. Oh, you got a meeting that's going on over here? Yeah, well, we'll try to listen. <laughs> and you got kind of that heart and attitude. Y'all all know so I mean you got to know the person and they and they and you can't say anything to them because what. They showed up at 8.45 for a 9 o'clock job. They, they did their job. They clocked it in and did all the stuff. And they're in it to win it. But there's an authority problem. Which that's a, that's a deeper rooted issue of pride that needs to be rooted out. So it's not just, I think in our minds sometimes we get this picture when we read this passage of the lazy people that showed up late and kind of stumbled in there. Like, man, I'm so sorry. Woo! Now, there's a deep rooted intentional, unrepentant heart that's at hand here that the Apostle Paul's angry with, and it can just as well manifest itself with, with authority. And the Apostle Paul, I think what he's looking for is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's like, I'm looking for ambassadors. Wherever you are, you're an ambassador of the faith. You carry the ministry of reconciliation because of what God's done for you. He's, he's brought you from death to life. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's, he's given you the ministry. You've been reconciled. And then after your reconciliation, not only did He save you, He said, guess what you get to do? You get to carry this unbelievable, off-the-chart news to the rest of the world. And where do we spend most of our time when we're adults? Work. We spend it in work. And in, in all, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you're preaching the gospel to these little beautiful babies that are going to grow up to be missionaries or you're in, in the workplace. We're carrying the Ministry of Reconciliation. We are ambassadors. What do ambassadors do in real life? Like what is a U.S. ambassador is going to go to another country, a foreign country, where people don't know what it's like to be American, and you're going to be the best, most clear representation of what it looks like to be an American. So the Apostle Paul, in, in the Roman Empire, they understood that language. He's saying, "I want you to be an ambassador of what? Your new citizenship." And you're, you're no longer a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. So you're the best picture of the kingdom of God for the rest of the world. And that's what happened in the second chapter of Acts. In verse 42 to 47, you see this unbelievable picture of the church. All these The church exploded. Peter preaches the gospel, says repent and be baptized, and 3,000 are saved. And then you see at the end of that chapter, they start talking about this community. It's like everybody marveled at all of these people that were working they were giving to each other. The rich people were given to the poor people. Everybody had something to eat. It was, the, it was the best version of the church that you read in Scripture. And that's what the Apostle Paul has in his mind is he's like, hey, we, we want that because it's, it's like a city on a hill. It's a bright, shining light. Not saying we're better than everybody else, but welcoming people in and saying, hey, we know what it's like to live the life that Jesus has called us to. We want to lead people to life and not to death. And when we're unified, not on our own agenda, you know, doing things for ourselves, but instead regarding other people higher than ourselves, then we create this beautiful Jesus community. That's what you're experiencing. So these people on the outside were seeing all of that. And that's the intent here is that we would be ambassadors, that we work heartily as unto the Lord, is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He's saying, Don't, don't look at your human masters or your, your human body. Ba- they're, they're human, they're gonna be sinful. Work for the king that saved you. In your mind, have the gospel in your mind. You've received so much from him. You can be a reflection of him in the workplace by being. We should be the best of people. We should be the best in our workplace. I've said this so many times. Like, we should be, if you're an electrician, you should be awesome at it, you should be great at it. Right? We should be really, really good. We should be on the front end, not the one chasing the rest of the world going, Oh, my goodness. Well, Jesus is coming back soon, so I'm just not going to work that hard. Some people say that, that that's what this whole, like, Second Thessalonians is all about. Because right before this, what, did, what was he talking about? Hey, you're not going to know when Jesus is coming back. I'll give you some signs. Stop worrying about the end times so much. You're getting, you're getting preoccupied with the end times. And then he talks about being lazy. So many of the commentaries say, these people were quitting their jobs today. they was like, man, Jesus is coming back. That ain't going to work. I'm just going to chill watch Netflix till it gets here. Right? And he's saying, no, we're going we're to work. We're going to uphold this community in a powerful way. Lastly, number three. So we see that work is, is a belief and not a building. It's a pattern, not a place. And then work is not your freedom. Work is not your freedom. Just like I said in the beginning, your identity is it's not about what you do. Your identity is that you're an image bearer of, of God. And as a follower of Jesus, your identity is in Christ, and Christ alone. And that isn't fragile. That doesn't slip out from underneath your feet. Work is not your freedom. Sometimes we put work in that place where that's the thing that we have to do. We have to execute our dream. I've got this dream to make music. I've got this dream to make art. And I just, in the cubicle, I don't get to do that. I have to answer the phone, sell this thing that I don't like. That's what I have to do. I can't do my art. And We make this mistake that we've made our work what we are. You know, I had a friend of mine, he uh, went to one of the most prestigious art schools in the country in Los Angeles and started doing his art. You know, got out of school and did graphic design, digital design for Fox Searchlight and Sony Pictures and seemingly a cool job. He's like, they, they pay nothing because they think you're privileged to, to work for a, you know, a movie studio. Uh, and he lived in Brentwood in L.A., which is cheap, you know. Um, it's not. And he's, he, he finally just got to that point. He's like, I know my job's cool. He didn't actually. He, he said, you know, it seems cool. It's like we get to take subways and turn them into like airport terminal, terminals with graphics and stuff. Um, but he quit that. He said, my buddy just started, uh, you know, his company's moving into California residential elevators. He goes, you know what, I think I'm going to do that. And he made like eight times what he made as an artist, you know, selling residential elevators to rich people. Um, and now he's like, I can just paint whenever I want because I got enough money and I can raise my family. I can do I mean, it's just sometimes we have a, a distorted view of work being the thing that's going to finally free our heart and make us who we are supposed to be. But only Jesus can do that. And it's interesting. Uh, organizations sometimes have slogans. Um, that are supposed to inspire us to work. And shockingly enough, even Auschwitz concentration camp had a slogan for the people that came to that camp and it was because they were wanting to inspire them to work hard while they were there. And it was work makes free. Arbeit macht frei. It's one of the banners over Auschwitz concentration camp. The Buddhist mantra never cease striving. Kind of goes right along with that. It's one of the things our performance is often tied to our value. On this side of heaven, I think that's why we look at work a certain way. Why we get so upset about work. Why it can be so crushing at work. Why it can make us feel devalued at work. Because we've got work makes free. Never cease striving. This is who you are. But Jesus has a different mantra. It is this. On the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Which means you don't pay for it. You're not working for your value. You're not working for your identity. You're not performing to wonder if you are precious in his sight. He said, it is finished. The enemy no longer has a hold over you. There's no shackle for you. There's no chaining. That way we go in and we work hard for another reason. We're not shackled to our identity in that job. We're free in Jesus to do what he's called us to do which is be an ambassador in the place that God's called us to work whether that be our home, church, our workplace. He said it is finished which means in him we're finally free. You see what when we receive our freedom, it changes who we are. Surprisingly, you would think when you get your freedom at the hands of another human being, all you'd want to do is, you know, go be free, right? I'm just going to go watch Netflix for the next two years because I've been in bondage. You know, I've got some free time now. It's interesting. There's an old story. Some people say it's apocryphal, but it's about Abraham Lincoln. And according to one historian, Abraham Lincoln went down to the slave slave block to buy a slave girl. And as she looked up at the white man bidding on her, she figured he was another white man going down to buy her and then abuse her. He won the bid. And as he walked away with his property, he said, young lady, you are free. She said, what does that mean? It means you're free. Does that mean that I can say whatever I want to say? He said, yeah, dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean that I can be whatever I want to be? And he said, yes, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl with tears streaming down her face said, then I will go with you it's a changed perspective in the gospel because Jesus sets us free and he doesn't have to to say okay I did some stuff for you now you got to do some stuff for me I worked hard for you on the cross now you got to work hard for me but when we when we experience the gravity of somebody buying our freedom, our natural inclination that is wired into us is to go with the one that has set us free. Let's stand together. See, Jesus, I don't know where you've, you've come from today, but Jesus is, is, he's speaking in the room this morning. Somebody in here has heard the, the, the words, I am not enough. Don't know where they've come from. Don't know how they've gotten in there. Could be the way that you grew up. Could be the parent that you had, the father that spoke those words over you in many different ways, or the lack of a father even being around. Could just be the way the enemy has woven his way into your ear. And maybe it's driven you to many different places. Maybe it's driven you to work really hard. Maybe it's driven you to be angry and frustrated with the world around you and everybody around you, or maybe angry at God. But I'm telling you, Jesus is alive and he is in this room and he wants you to know. He wants you to see. He wants you to get an image and a picture of the cross this morning. And he wants it to amplify to you that you are enough. Not because of what you've done, not because of your performance, because of what he's done. Because he's paid it all for you. Because he loves you. He values you. And you can put your identity and your faith in him. And it's bigger and greater and more stable than anything you can get on planet earth.